Hello, and welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, where we explore the ups and downs of the creative process and how to keep it moving. I'm your host, Nancy Norbeck. I am a writer, singer, improv comedy newbie, science fiction geek, and creativity coach who loves helping right-brained folks get unstuck. I am so excited to be coming to you with interviews and coaching calls to show you the depth and breadth both of creative pursuits and creative people, to give you some insight into their experiences, and to inspire you. My guest today is Tracy Matthews of Flourish and Thrive Academy and the Thrive by Design podcast. Tracy is a jewelry designer and entrepreneur who loves marketing. Even more than that, she loves helping other creative folks, and as we discuss, by creative, we mean everyone, get a handle on the business side of their work. If you've ever wondered how to make the leap from hobby to business, or if you're struggling to find the balance between the work you love and the marketing end, you'll get a lot out of this interview, including the importance of fun and protecting your creativity, how we often give up too quickly, but sometimes if something isn't lighting you up anymore, you may need to switch gears, and a lot more. Here's my conversation with Tracy Matthews. Tracy, thank you so much for talking to me today. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Me too. So, so tell me, you know, how, how did your creative journey start? I started as a jewelry designer. I took a, I mean, I'm still a jewelry designer, but I took a class in college and uh, that kind of, I mean, I think I was always a creative kid. Like I would daydream a lot. I was into painting and drawing and sketching, but that creativity kind of translated into this career when I took a jewelry making class in college and uh, decided to actually launch a business back in the 90s. So it's been a fun ride. <laughs> I think it, wow. it has been like an entire lifelong thing. How did you, you know, how did you end up deciding to start a business with it? I mean, did jewelry is kind of an unusual thing, though it is a little bit more tangible than, you know, a lot of people get grief from family and friends at the idea of wanting to be an artist or a musician, was it a little easier, do you think, since it was jewelry? Or was it still like, what are you thinking? No, well, I come from an entrepreneurial family. So ah. I think that there wasn't a lot of like resistance necessarily from the sense of like, oh, you want to start a business. I think that they wanted me to think it through. My dad was like, you should write a business plan, like those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. However, so there was, I don't think that there was like lashback, like you can't do this kind of thing. Like a lot of people have that came a little bit later. Um, you know, when I actually launched and I was married and my, um, my ex-husband was like, you have to start making money or else you're going to have to go back and get a regular job. Uh, but as far as deciding to launch a business, you know, I was on a path to have a career really in retail. I was uh, working at Nordstrom. I wanted to either go on a buyer track there or, um, start my own boutique because that was kind of a thing back then. And I was working in boutiques and in retail to put myself through school. So I think that originally I wanted to like be own a store and buy all these, um, buy all these brands. And I love fashion and all those things. When I found jewelry design, um, one of the stores that I had been working at throughout college was starting to buy up these independent designers. And so when I realized I had this talent and started making jewelry and then people wanted to buy it, it seemed like the next logical step to kind of keep things going. So um, I think I really was fortunate because I got in on the independent jewelry scene before it became like you could throw a rock and hit a jewelry designer. Mm -hmm. nowadays. Um, I think with the rise of Etsy, it's become much more accessible for basically anyone with a product to kind of get online. And 
back then it was, it was much more of a, I, I don't know if grind is the right word, but the only way that you could really grow a big brand was to sell at the store. So you had to be pretty committed to actually make that happen. Yeah. So how long did it take you to get to the point where you were in a position to sell something to a store? Um, well, I did the business part-time for about five years while I was putting myself through school. So I would uh, mainly sell to friends and family and extended network through what I call jewelry parties at my home okay. or other people's homes. And then uh, I think at one of those I met, you know, I'd meet a couple of people. Oh, I, I know someone with a store. So I started doing selling to a couple of stores, mostly on consignment back then. But I realized early on, like consignment really didn't get a commitment from the store to sell stuff. And I remember sending a whole bunch of jewelry to the store when I was uh, still in school. And three months later, I called them and like, Hey, what's sold through? And they're like, Oh, we haven't even unpacked the box. So I was just like, I'm uh. done. With that. So when I finally uh, was like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm committing. I got married and moved to San Francisco and I felt settled. I started approaching local boutiques and stores there. And I got into like one or two right away. And then that was kind of when I decided to start the business uh, full time. And within about uh, a year, I think I was in eight to 12 stores or something like that. So just it was a lot of trial and error. It was a lot of rejection. A lot of people saying, no, you're not ready yet, but come back later kind of stuff. And I just stuck with it because I, I really wanted to make a living with my art. Yeah. When, when they would tell you you weren't ready yet, what kind of things did they mean? Well, I got a lot of feedback, um, you know, like the collection, maybe you could develop the collection a little bit more, or we have that look covered right now. Mm. Uh, so come back later. Most of the feedback was really from the perspective of, you know, like you have talent, but these are things that if you want to be carried in a store like ours, these are things that need to be fixed. So I, mm -hmm. I actually like really listened where most people would have taken that as like rejection. I listened to it and I was like, okay, well, how can I use this to improve what I'm doing? Because I knew I was still kind of in the nascent phases of like really like finding my signature style and what I was all about. And then I got into, I kept developing, I kept developing. And then I got into a couple of really key accounts a store in San Francisco called Metier and a store in Portland, Oregon called Twist. And that was, they were both, I think in my second year in business and full time. And those kind of, uh, those two stores really opened the door to many others because they were well-known industry. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's important sometimes to get, um, the stores I, I suppose that are going to expand your name. And that's sort of what that, ha what happened there. Yeah, that's it. So that's it, it's a little bit luck, but a lot of persistence along with it. A lot of hard work and persistence and using connections. You know, if people knew someone, the, the way I got into this store twist is that my friend uh, was from Portland and she was friends with her parents were friends with the owner because they'd bought a lot of stuff from that store. And so she just asked them, can my friend send you some line sheets? And they said yes. And then they faxed me an order because that's when people still fax things. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what? And it was, I remember it being like $4,000. It seemed huge at the time because this was back in the nineties. I was getting orders for like $300, you know, mm -hmm. like really small orders. So I was excited. Wow. Yeah. That must've really been a confidence builder too. Yeah, it was good <laughs> back then, especially when I was starting out. 
Yeah. So, so what is it about the actual process of designing jewelry that appeals to you? Um, well, I mean, I, I only spend about 5% of my time designing jewelry these days because I do so many other things mm-hmm. um, in creative space. Uh, back then, I would say that the thing that really was exciting was being able to create something that people thought was cool and they wanted to buy. And so I'd play around, you know, I started out like trained as a metalsmith, uh, but my first collections were all these cold fusion pieces or beaded jewelry, because that's what I could do in the space that I had in my apartment uh, that I was working out of in the beginning. And so I launched my first collection sort of like outside the scope of what I was trained to do. Um, And then I just kept evolving it. Uh, But the thing that I, I really liked working with my hands I think more than anything over time, though, what I really enjoyed was that I designed something that people wanted to buy. That makes sense. Yeah. And then these days, um, because my business model is so different, that was really a wholesale model. And over the years, I sold to about 350 stores um, at the height of my career, which is awesome. But nowadays, I work one-on-one with private clients. And I'm really... this. The process I work with now is really more of an intuitive design process because I'm designing in my style, but specifically for someone. So it's like I'm taking a look at their lifestyle, like kind of their taste and what they do and what they wear and designing something in my aesthetic for them. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's one of a kind. It's a little bit different. Yeah. That sounds like an interesting challenge, though. Yeah, I, I really enjoy it. It's it's fun. Um, I wish I had more time to do it, but I'm running so many other businesses. It's kind of like one of those things. So tell us about the other things you're doing. Yeah. So, um, I've been, you know, over the years when you've been, you know, I think it's been almost 25 years now that I had started my first jewelry company back in the day. You get people along your path. You like get to know, get to know who you are as a designer who like might look up to you. And then they ask for help. And so this was happening a lot. I would get designers reaching out to me saying, oh, I saw your uh, jewelry in Lucky Magazine or I saw your jewelry in InStyle. I'm starting a business. Um, uh, Would you be up for grabbing coffee sometime and just chatting about your process? So this kept happening, kept happening. And uh, 2008 wiped out my first company. And around 2010 and 11, I was still getting these newer emerging designers um, coming on the scene and asking for help. And so I started consulting because I had a little bit more time because this new business model that I had wasn't um, taking up as much time. So it was really just finding the customers, designing something, making it, uh, shipping, et cetera. So I started consulting and I realized that um, some of the people would say yes, but others would be, it would be a little bit cost prohibitive because mm-hmm. in order to really get results, they would have to work with me for you know six months to a year to learn like everything that it takes to really like launch or grow a company. And so I decided to create courses and programs and coaching that would support the jewelry industry. So in, when did we start? 2012, I launched with my co-founder, Robin Creamer, uh, a company called Flourish and Thrive Academy. And we help independent jewelry designers launch, grow and scale their sales from zero all the way to seven figures, depending on what their goal what they want. And, uh, we do that through programs, courses, and, uh, coaching and some consulting, but not as much consulting anymore, mostly 
maybe it's more like coach consulting. So you're like, we coach <laughs> and consult at the same time <laughs> in the group format. So that's one of the companies. And then last year I launched a brand called uh, Creatives Rule the World, which is more of a speaking, uh, writing and event platform. And this, uh, this business is really a passion of mine because as I've been an entrepreneur for over 25 years and in that business world, I have found uh, an interesting an interesting phenomenon among, amongst uh, creative visionaries or people who found companies uh, based on a skill set, but particularly in their creative zone of genius and their type of creativity, is that when you're not spending most of your time doing the strategic and creative work. And that's not necessarily the making stuff. So I don't want that to be confused with like, if you, if you're painting or actually practicing your craft, but the creative work that's going to grow your business, if you're getting sucked into the day to day, then it's really hard to grow and scale. And you always kind of end up being in this uh, reactionary phase instead of like a proactive phase. that's actually going to help grow. So I started to become fascinating with protecting my own creativity. And then in our, with our coaching students, I started helping them do the same. And that uh, led to this, this other business. And so uh, we have this retreats and masterminds for visionaries and creative thinkers who are entrepreneurs. So tell me more about protecting your creativity. Yeah, so it's interesting. I, you know, one of the things that I love to do is come up with, ideas. Like, I really think that that's my strength as a, as an entrepreneur. And I know many visionaries and entrepreneurs would probably, um, say that that's the same thing, but what ends up happening is that you're running a business and then you get pulled away and you have to do all these things. So I started, um, this started way back before I even really knew what I was doing. But when I had a team back in San Francisco, we had this big office space and had up to 13 people in the office at certain points, uh, helping us uh, design, make and ship the orders and, or doing different parts of the business. Many of them were students. So they were part-time and, um, I hadn't really understood the impact or power of like developing systems in my business so that I wouldn't get interrupted. So I would have a line outside my office most days of people asking me questions or that I get interrupted all day. And so, um, one of the first things that I started do, doing was setting boundaries around when people could actually ask me questions. And then I had a rule they had to come to me with three possible solutions to those questions. I realized later that many of those things would have been solved if I um, asked them to create systems so that they knew, like, if they had a question, they could go reference that mm-hmm. first. But I was new in business. I didn't get this at the time. Um, then I would start creating uh, morning routines and time alone where I could work because I'm really freshest in the morning. And so this doesn't necessarily have to be in the morning for anyone. Uh, it could be later in the day if that's your more productive time, but uninterrupted time where I had, where I was working on business development. So that would be, uh, for me, it's the morning and that's like time to think time to, you know, focus on maybe nowadays more like content that I'm creating time to like brainstorm or reach out to strategic partners or people who can kind of spread the word about what we're doing all of those kinds of things. So it was, I was blocking time out in big chunks to kind of focus on my most uh, productive and creative work. And then I started instituting these creative days and my team knows that they aren't allowed to interrupt me really during that time, that it's a creative day. Like if they need something done, I'm not going to, or if they have questions for me, 
that they can't interrupt me on that time. But those creative days was really those creative days that I do now are really an opportunity and a structure for me to work on big projects, to write my books, to um, create content that's relevant to business development and growth. And so when you're strategic about it, and there's so many ways to protect your creativity and protect your time, but when you're uh, strategic about it and you're really thinking through about why you're doing this, it offers you this space to actually do your best work. And so uh, there are many tools that you can actually use to protect your creativity. Those are just a few. Uh, creative days, setting boundaries around your time, and then also using your most productive uh, time during the day for the most productive or the m- most important things that you have to do. Um, but it really helps. And the other thing that I think is really, really important, and this will be individual for everyone else, is to have daily routines. Uh, and you hear this a lot, but like a journaling practice, maybe a meditation practice, or doing the same thing every every day when you wake up in the morning so that there's structure and routine. Uh, one of the things that I've heard out of many, um, creative types mouths mouths is that they don't like structure because that's the reason why they started a creative business, but then they're all over the place. They feel overwhelmed Mm -hmm. all the time. They can't get anything done. They feel like they're not good at business and all these things. And I, um, argue that when you create more structure in your schedule or your day, you actually, well, you're more productive. That's kind of an obvious thing, but, but you're more creative because you actually can have like a container for that creativity instead of just trying to like wing it and come up with it at a random time. Does that make sense? It makes absolute sense. And, and I totally agree with you. And I, you know, I, I have been one of those people who is like, (laughs) Oh my God, no, don't, don't put me in a box. Don't make me do it your way. I want to do it my way. And there's, you know, I mean, there's a place for that, but it's so true that sometimes the lack of structure is what keeps us from doing what we want to do. I mean, even if structure is just, I'm setting aside two hours on Thursday night to do my painting. Yeah. You know, it's there it's waiting for you. And, and then it's like, it's, it's demarcated. It's like, nobody can come into that two hours because this is my two hours. So it's kind of a boundary at the same time, but even just, you know, if you can't hold to that boundary by yourself, even just going and taking a class is enough to get a lot of people going. And yeah, structure gets a bad rap. I mean, I don't think we want to be overly structured. There's a, there's gotta be that balance, but But yeah, people definitely cringe at all that, which actually brings up the other thing I was going to ask you, which is, you know, the whole idea of doing all the marketing stuff and coming up with that kind of strategy and everything is is another thing that I think is really tough for a lot of creative people because it's like, okay, I want my stuff to get out there. But strategy, what is that? That sounds corporate and scary. And, And I'm wondering, like, how do you how do you help people get past that? Well, I think the most important thing that I have experienced that I know to be true is to actually just find a teacher or a mentor or someone who could tell you what to do. It's the like fastest path, number one, to cash and the fastest path to getting results. Because what ends up happening is like when you try to figure it out yourself, you spend all this time spinning your wheels and trying to like figure out something that's already been done before Yeah, that uh, you could replicate, which you know, might be some sort of investment, but at the other end of the stick, it's like, what's more valuable, some money or a little bit of money that's going to speed up 
your results and yeah. impact if you sales that you could actually pay back that investment or figuring out with your time. So to me, um, you know, I, I work with people on this all the time because there, I work with a lot of solo business owners who are doing, you know, they're kind of at that critical point where they're just getting to the six figure marker. And if they're doing it full time with a product based business where there's like a physical cost of the product and that's the revenue, um, especially if they're living in a place like New York or something like that, they can't afford to really hire a lot of team to support mm -hmm. them. So they have to be productive and um, understand like, okay, this, at this moment, at this time, I'm going to be working on marketing. And so my best tool for that is something that, I, that I've been doing forever, but I've, I've named it, um, you know, when we started Flourish and Thrive Academy, uh, which I call time blocking. Um, and then you, you can also set a timer and use, do like Pomodoro method or something mm -hmm. like that to switch tasks, but time blocking and then certain days for certain activities. Because you, when your brain, when you show up in the morning and your brain knows exactly what it has to focus on. There's no, um, switching gears or like uncertainty about what needs to be done. So if you're on a sales and marketing day, you know, that, you know, the productive hours of your day are going to be focused on sales and marketing, whether that's creating a marketing plan, doing strategic stuff or all those other things. Um, what's important about this is to be able to, um, get your brain focused in that mode. So usually what I would do is set aside two days, for sales and marketing, I would do one day for, um, usually the creative stuff. And then, um, the other two days, depending on your type of business would be maybe like business development. Maybe it's like a half and half day where you're doing some because consistency is really the most important part of putting yourself out there. It's like, you have to be doing this on a daily basis to start attracting those right customers and getting people into your funnel. So I think being able to consistently put yourself out there is the difference between someone who is a hobbyist and just wants to do the art and someone who is a, a creative business owner who's someone who wants to make money from their art. So there is a, I think there's, is a fairly strongish line in the sand between those people. So I always ask people, you know, if they're hesitant with the marketing and the sales piece, or they just want to like outsource it to someone else is like, how badly do you really want it? And, you know, I, I always lean on like, there's this woman, Ashley Longshore. She's a really well-known pop artist. She has collaborations with like Gucci and Diane von Furstenberg now, Bergdorf Goodman. She's crushing it, anthropology. And I met her probably 10 years ago when she just had this um, um, studio in New Orleans. She decided to, to go against the grain of what everyone was doing in the art world and she decided to uh, not go the traditional gallery route. She was just going to sell out of her own gallery, collect, you know, her celebrity clients and all those things and leverage it. She's one of the fastest painters I know. She makes like, she's really um, prolific in, in the amount of art that she can produce. And she's always putting herself out there because she just has created this personality behind her brand. She's always marketing and she's like has this multi-million dollar art business now, which is like incredible because she, even though she was in the face of fear, she still continued to put herself out there and stayed aligned with what mattered to her. And so if you really want it, you will get it. But you know, there's a saying that 
um, most people give up right before they're about to make it big. And so I just feel like, you know, if it's important to you, like keep going, you know, and you know, if you need to make money other ways in order to support your life, then do it, but keep going. Cause you just don't know when you're going to hit that tipping point. And I've seen it for myself and others so many times, you know? Yeah. It's, it's so easy to, you know, plant the seed in the ground and then have this idea that it's going to sprout in two days when it actually needs two weeks. Yeah. And, and when you don't see it in two days, you think, ah, oh, it's never going to sprout and I'm going to give up and do something else now. And that just means you don't ever give it a chance to do what it's going to do for you. Yes. Yeah. For do, sure. Yeah. Do you, I have to think you see a lot of people who, you know, want to do that, you know, every three days, Oh, I need to do something different. Did you have a tough time getting them to, just focus on the one thing and give it time. I want to do that all the time. <laughs> so do I. I drive my uh, team crazy sometimes. I'm like, okay, now we're doing this. No. Um, I mean, I think it's normal. I do think it's really important to keep focusing on like um, the one thing that is going to move your business forward. In fact, so here's a really good example of this. Last year, we had many, many courses at Flourish and Thrive Academy, and we decided to basically streamline our offerings. We retired all of our programs with the exception of two, and we're bringing in a third tier now in between because we realized that the the main uh, revenue generators for the company and also the the programs that were getting people the, the most results were these two offers. And so we were spending a lot of time and energy trying to promote other things that we could probably combine into these other course courses or programs and get better and keep people for the long haul. Now, this is a course style program, like, you know, with a product based business, we can talk about that later or an art business. Um, and it was hard because it, in the short term, we had to, t- we took a, you know, uh, not a financial setback as far as revenue goes. But it was, it's hard to retire those things because people are like, well, why can't I get that anymore? Or why? Uh, and it also took a lot more manpower to be able to like streamline the offer and to create the new messaging and the Ascension modeling. And all of those things were challenging, but I know because of that, we're setting up a better, um, more results focused offer for students. And I am someone who all I really care about is that they're getting results. Like mm-hmm. I could sell programs all day, but if it wasn't making a difference in someone's life, it wouldn't really matter to right. me because at the end of the day, like I want to see people succeed. And that's, that's why I do what I do because I'm telling you right now, I would make a lot more money and have work a lot less if I was only doing my jewelry company. Cause it's, um, like, it's like second nature to me mm-hmm. at this point but I have this passion to serve. So I I chose to do that instead Um, or spend most of my time doing that uh, instead. But I think where people get distracted is that obviously with products and I think art is a little bit different because I think people with like, let's say we're talking about large format paintings or something like that. Sometimes that kind of art might take a little bit more consideration, especially if it's like, in the couple of thousands of dollars round, people might be thinking like, how is this going to fit into my home? Or, you know, they might want to look at it a few times. So that might be like a longer lead process, but with like smaller products like jewelry, you can get immediate feedback from the market. uh, As long as you're reaching or extending out to a big enough audience. And, um, I say that because, 
you know, you know, like if once you start to build traction and get customers who actually buy from you, you can test products right away to see what's working and lean into the ones that aren't and then retire the ones that aren't. And my co-founder, Robin, um, used to see this a lot with a company that she kind of put on the map called Dogyard Jewels and Gifts. And she brought them to from like a, a low seven figure to multiple seven figure business in a short period of time. And uh, one of the things that the founder kept doing because they they were on like a hot streak for so long was adding more assortments of the things that were actually selling. But what ended up happening was it diluted the brand in a way that um, people got confused. And so that what they had to start doing was streamlining their product offering to get people focused. Cause the more you can focus someone on the thing, the, the more you will sell, the more you confuse them, they won't buy. If that makes sense. That's interesting. That makes sense to me. Yeah. It's kind of like there are too many things to decide between. So I can't decide. Yeah. And then they won't decide and they won't pick anything. Right. Which is true in lots of places, not just in selling. No. Yeah. For everything. Yeah. I used to have like all these things that I would do with my jewelry company. Like I would consult, I would do private label. I would, um, you know, do heirloom redesign and engagement rings and wedding bands and, uh, custom jewelry. Then I was doing like one of a kind jewelry. I was doing all these different things. And when I decided to cut everything out, except for the, um, basically the custom design pieces and then specialize in heirloom redesign and engagement rings and wedding bands, it became so easy to sell. Like it was no longer a problem or an issue for me, which was amazing. Yeah. I think that's a a surprising thing for a lot of people, but yeah, if you make the decision easy. Yeah. Yeah. So do you find that you get the same kind of, of creative energy out of all of the courses that you put together and, and all of that kind of stuff that you did when you were just, or when you are just making jewelry, or is it a different kind of vibe for you? It's really different. Um, I like to be challenged and designing jewelry is like back of my hand. So it's like super fulfilling because I get to create these beautiful piece pieces that my clients love to wear. So it's a different kind of fulfilling. It's, it's not as challenging except when I'm trying to like solve a problem, like how can I set the stone this way kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I'm working with my jewelers. So, but that's like more of like the satisfaction of knowing like I created this physical thing that is like perfect for this person. They love it. And they, you know, wear it every day because mm-hmm. it's so amazing. So I love that piece of it. The other stuff is, is really challenging because it's in, uh, exciting maybe is a good way to put it because I'm actually helping other people get results that they want. Like, so, you know, my knowledge and what I bring to the table has helped them grow their businesses. And to me, that's really exciting. And there's always like, I love marketing. And so there's always this challenge with like, how do we, you know, finesse the marketing so that we're speaking to the target audience and, uh, and the people that actually that we can serve. And so it's a different kind of challenge at that point, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It, it does. I mean, you know, I used to teach and there's definitely a, a, a satisfaction that comes from helping somebody else do something that they want to do. That's, you know, right in front of you where you can see the impact that is hard to replicate in a lot of other places. Exactly. Yeah. So what I'm just wondering, and, and it might be easier to, you know, focus on, on one particular story, but if, if there, if there are any, any stories of, of people that have gone through your courses that have really made a, a difference to you that, 
you know, where you learned something you didn't expect to learn from working with that person or just something surprising, anything like that? Oh, gosh, there's so many. Um, I mean, I don't know that it's surprising because I've seen it happen. So I don't know if any of these stories are surprising, but have some exciting stories. We have this program. Uh, it's our, it's for our designers who are kind of like trying to scale to multiple six figures. We call it SOS coaching program. We're rebranding the name as we speak. I'm not going to reveal that yet because we're not ready to release it. Um, and one of our designers, um, Twyla, she joined our program at the beginning of last year and her mother, part of the reason why she wanted to join the program was because she knew her mother was going to pass away. Her mother had MS for a very long time and it was time, time for her to go. And so she wanted help like setting up her business so that it wouldn't basically like just decline when, when all this is happening. And she like, I think in a way she set a, a, a goal for herself to grow, but also she would have been okay. Like if it just stayed the same, but what she really needed was like, how can I get, set the infrastructure in place so that I can go be with my mom, take two months off, say goodbye to her and all those things. And, um, by setting up the systems that we recommended using our system, um, leveraging, she has a, a really strong in-person, um, in-person customer base. Cause she sells at a, this place called Pike's Pike's place market mm-hmm. in Seattle, which most people, people who go to Seattle know about it. And she wanted to leverage those in-person customers that she would usually only meet once because they were tourists typically and sell to them more than once. So we helped her with an online strategy. Her online sales increased by 10% in a very short period of time. During the months that her mother, that she took time off for her mom, her business grew over the previous years because she had systems in place for her salesperson to kind of take over for her. And overall, the business was up about... um, 40, I think the number was like 43% over the previous year at the end of the year. Wow. And so that is pretty phenomenal because life happens to all of us. And I think one of the things that people don't realize is that if you don't focus on life proofing your business, then when something like that happens, your business might go away. Mm-hmm. And we all like as entrepreneurs and creative entrepreneurs and business owners, whatever you identify yourself as, especially selling art or a tangible product, you know, that is something we must always do. We have to remove ourselves from the business to be able to scale it. And it's not easy sometimes if we're so involved in the day to day, but when you do it right, you can see phenomenal results and growth and all these other things in spite of you being there or in, does that make sense? Or even it, it does make good. sense. And yeah. I, you know, I, I think you're, you're so hitting on something that scares a lot of people, cre- you know, creative and otherwise, though, in my personal view, there's no one who isn't creative, but, um, you know, who, who yeah. want to do the same thing. You know, it's like, if, if you want to do your own thing, the terrifying thing is, what if I get sick? What if somebody else gets sick? What if there's a natural disaster? What if, what if there's anything like that? And it's, it's really hard to, you know, cause, cause like you're saying, you, you totally could lose everything if something happens to you and you can't do that thing for a while. And I think that's what actually probably stops a lot of people from starting or makes it really stressful when they start out because they don't know 
how to deal with that kind of stuff so that they can at least breathe if something goes wrong? Well, I mean, there is, it is a risk. I mean, that's part of the like downside of entrepreneurship, if you call Mm -hmm. it a downside. Um, but I also think that, you know, you have an opportunity to un like break through a glass ceiling for what you can potentially make. And so you decide, you know, if like you're risk averse, then maybe it's not for you. Uh, I'm a super risk tolerant person and (laughs) I've been an entrepreneur for a very long time. It's scary AF. Like, I'm not going to lie sometimes. Like there are days when I'm freaking out and stressed out because something didn't go as planned or, you know, we didn't get, you know, the kind of results that we wanted from the marketing efforts that we're doing. And I have like legit cash flow concerns. I have a team of multiple people and output. And when things don't go right, you know, it's like what happens. So I think the, the most important thing that you could do is to really, um, you know, save money, you know, and, and start and really be adamant about as you're growing your business to put money aside for any sort of setbacks and, you know, like, like you do anyway, but also be focused on, on your outcomes instead of focus on the what ifs, because the more you can focus on the outcomes and positive, you can take actionable steps to get there. But if you're worried about like what ifs or if this happens, then you're focused on what you don't want to happen, which is the worst thing that you could possibly do. And so I would say stay focused on outcomes and then take action steps that are going to like support those outcomes every single day. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. When, when things go wrong for you, do you find that you actually end up being more creative in order to deal with them? Yes. When I get out of my own way, cause there's, <laughs> you know, I'm pretty good about getting out of, out of, uh, fear, mm-hmm. um, these days. Cause I, I have a tendency to, uh, lead with fun. That's my number one core value. Um, however, when I do get sucked down a rabbit hole or whatever, I allow myself to mourn. I journal, I work on, you know, my money affirmations and like, or depending on what it might be, cause there, there might be a different thing. It might not be money related, but whatever. Um, and I, I, the first thing I really do is to focus on getting my energy back to a positive place because the the negative energy is what zaps creativity or feeling stressed or overwhelmed or stressing about money. So you have to get your your head in the positive place first and then use your go-to tools. So if that's journaling, if that's meditating, if that's something else, then that's then, or whatever it is for you, maybe it's dance or movement or actually like doing your craft, then get back into it because that, that's sort of what I do. And then I sit with the space and start to think, okay, like, list all the ways that I can like change the situation or move things forward or create the plan or like, what's another way to think about this? How can I zig when everyone's zagging or whatever? Mm -hmm. And, um, kind of get out of my own way and I'll come up with a lot of ideas. The majority of them probably aren't the right thing, but, uh, when we, you know, when I can really focus on doing that, something good comes out of it and we end up getting a result. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And, and, you know, I think people get hung up on needing more ideas sometimes when really you probably only need one. So, you know, yeah. coming up with a lot of ideas, most of which don't work, isn't something we should look at as a problem. It's like, okay, yeah. so figure out which ones don't work, figure out which ones will and run with that. A hundred, a hundred percent. Um, and 
like a lot of the best, the best ideas and the best laid plans really aren't that good in the first place. Yeah. It's, but that's what like leads you to the really good idea. It's like keeping, like keeping that creative muscle pumping and moving forward. Um, I remember I was at an event, Amy Porterfield's event in October of last year. And she said something, they were trying to figure out how they could combine all their offers. And she was having a really hard time with how to sell it and monitor it. And someone on her team was like, what about if we just combine them all into one thing? And she was so upset because she was like, yeah, that's like the simplest idea that we could have even done. I'm trying to make this complicated. So sometimes the answer or the creative answer is actually in simplicity in uh, how can you make it less stressful for you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think so. we get hung up on that idea too, that, that something creative has to be wild and out of the blue and something you wouldn't think of before when that often isn't the case. Exactly. Yeah. So could you tell us more about leading with fun? Oh yeah. Well, my number one core value is fun and I, uh, our core value of both of my companies is fun. One of them. And you know, for me, any time in life when something doesn't seem fun, it means it's usually like a no, or you're going down the wrong path. And so it's not to say that everything is easy because fun sometimes isn't easy, but like mm -hmm. it's cause to me, fun is defined as challenging or that something that's going to grow or something that's going to bring enjoyment or life to my light or something that's going to help move me or, um, launch me in a new direction. Uh, it could mean like, you know, going out and literally just having fun and doing things that are fun. Um, I, I've realized many, many times in my career, if I'm only working and not enjoying what I'm doing or enjoying the fruits of my labor, even then what's the point of all the work. Oh, amen and, to that. and so I could easily, especially in the winter here in New York city could easily stay in every single night. But as an extrovert, I would, and I work from home alone as an extrovert, I noticed my energy started getting drained. So I would force myself to go and meet my friends a couple times a week, even though it was like cold or I didn't want to leave. Mm -hmm. And it was the, um, return on investment for actually doing that was so good because I would leave, I would light up, but I would also stop working, which I don't think working all the time is really the answer because that doesn't, that just keeps they say that we only have like a certain number of productive hours a day, like maybe maximum six if you're being like highly productive, but usually it's probably more like three or two or three. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think there's this belief that if you just work longer hours, you're going to get more done. But in those, in the, when you start stretching out those hours, like they become less productive and you're just like doing the same thing or you're getting distracted and you're not really working, but you just feel like you're being busy. Mm -hmm. That feeling of being busy makes you feel like you're getting stuff done. So I, I realized that that was happening a little bit. And unless I'm really in a crunch and like have to knock something out, even if it's painful, I, I try to stop working at least three days a week, um, early enough to go meet up with friends and, and enjoy like what I'm doing, because what ends up happening is that the, the rest of the time that I'm working is much more valuable, much more productive and all the things. Yeah. I wish that we could realize that more as a society. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It doesn't have to be corporate as much, right? Yeah. Cause I mean, you know, you're talking about how many productive hours a day you have. It's not eight. It's nope. not eight sitting in an office feeling like you're a drone. That's, that's not it. 
it's really more like, yeah, like probably two to three. And that's why I think it's super important to be focusing like the most, getting the most important work done during your most productive hours. Because if you're using that for meetings or someone else's agenda or checking email, then, um, you just wasted that time when you could be super focused and get a lot, a lot done in a short period of time. Yeah. And you know, corporate thinks that you're super productive all the time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. (laughs) It's just meetings make you feel important. (laughs) Yeah. It doesn't, doesn't happen. So now you have a podcast too, right? I do. Yes. Tell us about that. It's called Thrive by Design. It was originally um, started for jewelry designers and I teach them uh, business and marketing skills, but it works. What I teach is uh, universal for all types of artists and painters and product-based businesses. I remember I was like, maybe I should rebrand this podcast to something that's like outside the jewelry industry, but I do interview a lot of jewelry people as well. And the podcast is evolving, but I basically talk a lot about marketing and sales and I bring guests on to interview. I talk about productivity, business building, all those things, super fun. And then we have some fun on there as well. Um, and uh, initially the podcast, as I mentioned, was just for jewelry designers, but now I'm starting to expand it more to this bigger creative audience because my message about protecting your creativity, I think is a really important one. And I think that more people need to know how to do that in a way that actually works for them so that they're getting the most out of what they have. I would agree with that completely is, has the audience for that podcast surprised you? Is there a difference between who shows up for the podcast and, and who comes to your courses? I don't know if you have that kind of data handy. So we have, uh, I mean the, there's a large majority of people, um, a large majority of people who are find us through the podcast, which is cool. Jewelry designers and makers. We have other people in our audience that aren't even jewelry designers and makers, um, that buy our courses, even though they're not in the, in the field. The interesting thing, I was at a baby shower once and someone walked up to me and they were like, Oh my gosh, you're, they're like, your voice sounds familiar. Like, Oh my gosh, you're Tracy that you're the podcast host of Thrive by Design. I was like, yeah. She's like, you, your podcast saved my dog treat business. I was like, what? (laughs) So this woman, uh, who's a friend of my friend, my friend told her about the podcast. She's like, go listen to it. Even though you're not a jewelry designer, it will really help you. And she was launching this dog treat company and selling online. And she's like, my business is like totally crushing it right now because of your podcast. So those kinds of things are really surprising and funny or like if I'll be in the jewelry district at a vendor and someone hears my voice because they might not pick it up, like just me walking around the way I look Mm -hmm. and they're like, "Oh, Oh my gosh, I almost tripped out because I like, they like walk up to me and be like, looking at me funny. And I'm like, what? (laughs) 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 I listen to your podcast. I'm like, awesome. So those kinds of things are interesting, but, um, I've had a lot of people come up to me and say like, I don't even have a jewelry business and this podcast has been amazing. So I invite everyone to listen. That's fantastic. So since you have all this other stuff going on with flourish and thrive and with the podcast and everything, it, it doesn't sound to me like you're spending your days going, Oh, you know, I mean, I'm really kind of sorry that I don't do as much jewelry anymore. I mean, you sound pretty happy with the balance that you've struck. Does that sound right? That's true. Um, I, I've had a really long career in the jewelry industry and I'm really grateful for it. Um, I'm still designing 
I don't, I don't mark. It's like, I'm sort of like the undercover designer. And I say that because, um, I only really take clients on now on a referral basis or through my network. Uh, and that's by choice, uh, because I feel like some of the goals that I have right now have shifted from just designing jewelry. Like I'm writing two books, one for the jewelry industry and one, uh, about creativity. I am launching a podcast and I want to, want to be hosting more workshops, launching a mastermind, like all these things. And this is what's important to me now because uh, I'm in this more mode of service from that perspective. So the answer is yes and no, like jewelry is always going to be there. But mm-hmm. to me, like it's taking a little bit of a backseat only because these other things are the things that are um, really lighting me up in this moment. And one thing that I want to share with everyone who's listening is that just because you start doing one thing doesn't mean that that's what you have to do forever. And I say that because I've seen so many designers start a jewelry company and then decide that it's not working for them for whatever reason anymore. Um, Sometimes it could be because they couldn't get the sales and marketing off the ground, but maybe it's just that, you know, what they once loved was not the same thing that they still love. And I just want to tell you, no matter what, that that's okay. And there's all different ways, you know, all different ways to express your creativity out in the world. It's just acknowledging when that's what, uh, acknowledging that that's what's happening and not like beating yourself up over it because we all have a, a choice to pivot or change our mind. And I remember when I was working with my consultant, Phil, when my first company was winding down, he sat me aside because I was so miserable. I built this um, seven figure company Uh, I was shipping thousands of units a month, um, in a lower price point, uh, selling to stores all around the world at a ton of press celebrity clients, like everything that I said I wanted, I had, but it was hard and running the business was hard. It was not lighting me up anymore. I was not happy because I didn't know what I know now. And I know the reasons why I felt that way then. Um, but I had lost like the, the fight and the passion for that business. And so I decided to let it go and pivot into this new direction, launch a new jewelry company, which was, I couldn't even believe it. I was like, why didn't I do this sooner? Because I'm making so much more money personally with less overhead and less, uh, administrative fees. And it was like, so, or administration, maybe not administrative fees, but like the administration part of it, like having all the team and everything do, I could run the business with just like one production worker and a couple of outsourcers, um, for professional services. And, I was a lot happier. And so, you know, going back to that core value of fun, like my business wasn't that old business wasn't fun anymore. Like, and I'm always kind of leaning in towards like, what's lighting me up? What is getting me excited? What's inspiring me most creatively? And what is the most fun for me right now? And so some of these other things, because they're a little bit more challenging and new territory for me, seem like uh, the thing that's kind of lighting me up. And so that was a long way to kind of answer your question, but the jewelry will always be there. <laughs> but what, what's it? I'm always kind of leaning in towards, okay, like how can I best serve and like what's lighting me up the most now? And how can I bring that to the world to, to help more people kind of thing? Yeah. And I, th- I think that's a really important point. I'm glad you said that because it, you know, I think you, you do have to go where your curiosity and your passion is. And, mm-hmm. and yet I can also see where, 
there can be a really, really thin line between that and what we were talking about before and saying, oh, I tried this for five minutes and it's not working. And so now I'm going to try this other thing. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, making that distinction is tough, but if you follow, you know, what are you really interested in? What, what is your curiosity leading you to? If you're still curious about that project, if you're still, you know, want it to succeed, even though it's only been five minutes, then maybe you haven't given it enough time. But if you've been doing it for a while and it's just not quite doing it for you anymore, that doesn't necessarily mean you're a failure. It just means might be time to look at something else. Yes, exactly. And I think a lot of people think of it as, oh, I've failed, you know, the thing I'm supposed to love, I don't love anymore. Well, maybe that's just how it is. Yeah, it is just how it is. And I think that uh, as creative entrepreneurs and people putting themselves out there, there are no failures or just lessons. And you you look at so many people who pivot and change direction over time and how they've grown, even some of the biggest like product houses or fashion houses or jewelry houses, like they're always pivoting or sometimes they're bringing in other kinds of products, you know, to sell because like that's exciting or they're developing new things or like something that started as a shoe company turned into like a full on clothing company or whatever. Like there, there's multiple ways to pivot and evolve. Um, every five minutes changing that that's a a different problem, I think. But if you've tried something for a while and that's not like, you know, and you had some success and that's not where your passion lies anymore. It's okay to make a decision to change. Yeah. And it's, uh, you don't have to be married to it. No. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. That's a, that's a huge thing I think for a lot of people because identity gets tied into that and and Mm -hmm. everything else. And so who am I without this thing that suddenly isn't lighting me up anymore? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, is there any other core piece of advice you think everybody needs to hear or that you've learned along the way? Oh, so many. Um, I mean, I think the biggest thing is like protect your creativity as like your life dependent on it, because that's the way you're going to find more fulfillment, more happiness and more joy in your life altogether. And when you do that, especially if you're doing your, you have a creative business or even if you're working for someone else, I would beg to argue is that it sets you up for more financial success. Um, in the business world, to me, it's a little bit obvious because you're spending your time on doing the things that are actually going to be growing your business. But for, if you're working for someone else, I think where creativity really lies in is like, if you are someone who's presenting ideas and, you know, helping, uh, your company actually improve their, their revenue or improve their bottom line with creative solutions, that shows that you're like a a true asset and that helps make your position like recession proof and all those other things. So kind of from two ends of the spectrum, like the creativity as an entrepreneur helps you continue to grow and uh, place a a competitive edge. And in the workforce, it really helps you position yourself as someone who's like, you know, indispensable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's, that's something that gets overlooked too. You know, mm-hmm. when you do your own creative stuff, it does carry over into other places. So 100%. it's not, it, it's not like you just separate everything into its own little shoebox and they never touch. Nope. It's yeah. not like at all. Well, this has been a really great conversation. It's really exciting to hear how everything has evolved for you and what you've learned and accomplished along the way. 
Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. This has been a pleasure and so much fun. That's this week's episode. I'm so grateful to Tracy Matthews for sharing her insights with us and to you for listening. You can find all of Tracy's links and info in the show notes at fycuriosity.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts over on Instagram at fycuriosity. You can find show notes, the six creative beliefs that are screwing you up, and more at fycuriosity.com. I'd also love for you to join the conversation on Instagram. You'll find me at fycuriosity. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. See you next time.